Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello again. Welcome back to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Thanks so much again for joining us. And what a weekend it was in the Six Nations. Round two, storylines all over the place. And because Scotland are doing so well, we had to bring a Scottish man in, didn't we? Alan Dimmock, editor of Rugby World. He's with me on my left. How are you doing, Al? Very good, Will. Very good. Although I say that in a trepidatious way because I know the teams that are coming for Scotland later in this championship. Wow. First time they've won the opening two since 1996. What were you doing in 1996? I would have been nine years old. So um, probably gearing up for the eventual disappointment of Euro 96. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Colin Hendry and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And another man who was doing very successful things in 1996, right, is Stuart Barnes in our Wiltshire studios. How are you, Stuart? What were you doing with Bath in 1996? Well, no, 1996, I'd retired two years earlier. and I was, I like Alan, I was in my infancy, but my infancy as a journalist, I would have been 34 years old, and I'd been two years as a Daily Telegraph rugby writer at that stage. Okay. Before I turned from the dark side. (laughs) And everything went uphill from there, didn't it, right? I would say so. <laughs> yeah. So, Stuart, you must have loved watching some of that rugby over the weekend. It was sensational. Was that Ireland-France game? We'll get into it in full detail in a minute, but that's got to be up there as one of the best Six Nations games you've seen, is it? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this afterwards. Uh, and I think in games that I definitely thought was better, and I thought France come back 99 World Cup semi-final against New Zealand at at Twickenham on a Sunday was a better game for the drama as much as anything for the individual genius of Lomu is sensational. And then I'd say 2013, I had the good fortune to convince Sky to send me to uh, Johannesburg in Ellis mm. Park, where I saw uh, an epic uh, rugby championship match between South Africa and New Zealand at, at their very best. And I would say that game was probably of a higher standard uh, the semi-final had a little bit more drama, but if we're going to categorise, and I'm thinking about Six Nations games, I can't think of a Six Nations game 
that was better in terms of, of excitement, adrenaline and quality. And I think that's the key thing. The first 40 minutes from, from Ireland, I think, was the best rugby I've seen from a Northern Hemisphere international team uh, since England beat Ireland to win the Grand Slam ahead of the World Cup in 2003. Yeah, nice one. Well, now we're looking at it. So Ireland cemented themselves number one in the world. France still two. We've got New Zealand, South Africa, three and four. And the, the Scots are now fifth. They've moved up. But Alan, we're off your long run because all five of the top tier nations in the world are now on the same side of the World Cup draw. Thoughts? We can only see two of the currently five best teams in the world make it past the quarterfinals of the next Rugby World Cup because we did a draw in 2020 for the 2023 World Cup. We moaned about it a bit at the time, but it's only, I think it's kind of really hitting home now just how ludicrous that is. I've heard the reasons, you know, we know the reasons for it. It was all about tickets and logistics, being able to sell tickets months and months and months and months and months in advance so that it could guarantee that fans know exactly where they're going. This is an event that's the engine of the sport. This pays for everything. Rugby World Cup pays for the entire sport around the entire planet year after year after year. If it's that big, surely it can sustain having a draw closer and having a bit of uncertainty about exactly where the fixtures are before that or where the bases are going to be for the teams when the World Cup starts. It's just sort of like, well, we've always done it this way, so we're always going to do it this way. It just seems bizarre. Now, when this draw was made in 2020... Ireland were number five in the world rankings. Wales were number four in the world rankings. And look at how the world has changed right now. We wonder whether it will be the most competitive Rugby World Cup ever, but it will have to be earlier in the in the event itself because we're going to see five, four, at least four of the best teams in the world anyway, duking it out to try and get it past the quarterfinals. And remember, Ireland have never Ireland are number one in the world. They've still never made it past the quarterfinals yeah. in the World Cup. And they would I think they would probably like more of a reward for their yeah, form yeah, over yeah. the years. It's remarkable, isn't it? Like particular we'll get on to Scotland Wales in a second, but they're the two standouts almost of this, aren't they? Because Scotland have risen up to fifth, but they're on the same they're in a pool with Ireland and South Africa, which is absolutely ridiculous, who are numbers one and four. And then Wales, who were fourth, are now ninth. So you could get through to a quarterfinal and have it possibly against like, the eighth against the ninth best team in the world in the quarterfinals. It's, I don't know really why they have to do it so early. We, we mentioned the tickets thing, but yeah, it just seems madness, doesn't it? Well, it, it is too early. But having said that, had you waited another year, you still uh, wouldn't have been in the scenario we find ourselves in now. It, it's almost freakish what's happened. And yet at the end of this tournament, we don't know where the ratings will be. Although the way Scotland are playing, one would expect them to beat Italy and, and finish well. But what the other side, you've got in the Ireland, South Africa and Scotland pool, it's an epic pool, which you could turn around and say, isn't it amazing that there's one pool, you know, the old cliched pool of death, where it is going to elevate the game as opposed to we've all got a pretty good idea which two teams are coming out of that pool. It's just a matter of which order they're in and who they're going to play in the quarters. So I'm calling it the pool could... of anxiety, Barnsley, more than the pool of death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, the Scots are very confident at the moment. Anxiety mm-hmm. can turn to things more mortal. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it does make that pool into a showpiece and it gives us... Uh, a number of extra games that are exciting. Oh, and by the way, I do agree, We the draw's too early, but I'm just trying to, in my usual positive way, find the good out of this. And I yeah. think that pool is excellent. And I think you have two epic quarterfinals. So that's the plus. 
the minus, I really find it hard to think that Australia and England and Wales could possibly make a semi-final and say, aren't we good? And they <laughs> might be, you know, they might be in a different league down compared to the big guns. But, that you know, England, Australia, Wales, Argentina, a couple of those are going to go further than some very big operators. And that's disappointing. Yeah, And we're going to see Wales versus Fiji for the 10 billionth time in a Rugby World Cup. <laughs> yeah, well, the stat on Always that one, a good one is that the last time they lost the first two games of a Six Nations Wales was 2007 and they ended up in a World Cup pool with Australia and Fiji and got knocked out of the pool stages. So there you go. But I need to pause all the World Cup chat there because look at us during a Six Nations already talking about the World Cup. It's like Eddie Jones never left, isn't it? But right, what we're going to do on this podcast is delve straight into the action of the second round of the Six Nations, including that incredible game in Dublin, Ireland's thumping win over France. England beat Italy in there as well. And... Wales were thoroughly thrashed by Scotland and to talk us through that as well as Al will be Scott Hastings who was part of that 1996 team that won the first two games of the five nations as it was then and also by the end of the show we'll name our god or goddesses of the week but first it's all about Scott's after another impressive win. Right, so Scotland 35, Wales 7. And just looking back over the last three matches that Wales have played, and they have, well, (laughs) had some awful results. So they've conceded 108 points, 14 tries and 43 penalties in the last three matches. That's against Scotland, Ireland, Australia. Stuart, that is some serious problems there for Warren Gatland, isn't it? Yeah, uh, there is. Funny enough, for Wales, the brightest hope they could have is to play England at home in the next game because someone who's spent his life living either side of the River Seven, that rivalry can spark them. Because right now, I, I cannot see technically and tactically how they're going to get close to, to, to winning a game. And probably that includes Italy. I'm afraid Warren Gatland wasn't the answer. Uh, some people thought he was. It's going to be tough for Warren now. He's he's come back and, you know, people are expecting miracles and there are no miracles there. But I don't think it helped. He loaded the team top heavy with experience in the first game that looked so short term. Having criticised Wayne Pivak for going for old players himself, he then dumped them and went for a, a very young team. And, and the young team, when the heat came on in the Six Nations at Murrayfield, didn't have the answers, despite the fact that there were some promising performances, in particular Daffith Jenkins. Wales don't look as if they know where they are. I, I, I hate using um, martial metaphors because it's only a game, but they do look shell-shocked. Yeah, yeah. Al, the thing, the, the, the big C words of the Six Nations that have come over the last few years, cohesion, clarity, all that sort of stuff, that Ireland are fantastic at, probably the best of the world at that and most things at the moment. But Scotland have found that too. And having two sides where lots of players play, a couple like Finn Russell obviously play in France, but you look at some of the Wales young guys, lots of them based in England. So like Chris Chinzer, Daft Jenkins, Tommy Raphael, not playing with each other a lot. You've then got someone like Joe Hawkins who doesn't always start for Ospreys. It just seems like a a muddle. And if you're Warren Gatland, what do you do now? Do you, you have to keep well, the kids? the thing is, is... If you're Warren Gatland, you've you've done this before where you've found a generation of talent where you've backed them to the hilt over and over and over and over and over again until they're done, effectively. Yeah. Um, 
and it sounded a bit the way he was chatting after after the game and even just talking about this Six Nations as a whole that this is about giving some people some time. So I agree with Stuart. It was it seemed to me it seemed slightly odd that you would go so much with experience in that first game. And maybe it was just because the number one team in the world are coming down our throats. But, uh, and maybe we thought you could get away with it more in Scotland. And in that first half, I think the, the alarming thing is that Wales's chance of winning that game on Saturday was purely down to spoiling. The only way that they could beat Scotland was if they, <laughs> they rubbed dirt all over that game. Mm. And in the first half, they did. Now, there was a lot of errors from both sides. But, you know, it was sort of having to drag it down to level. That shouldn't be, that's not a long-term plan for Wales so I agree Daft Jenkins was a real pillar of hope for Wales still giving away penalties and discipline is, a, is an issue and you could say that that's down to inexperience but you're going to have to give them a long run so, so do you then just go right well let's let's do this even more let's try and build cohesion over time with a whole raft of younger guys do you see Sam Costello coming in as a fly half and saying he's the long term answer for me because there's been a, there's been a lot of musical chairs underneath Dan Bigger we saw Owen Williams and then we saw Patchell come in and you know these guys have been in and out of, of Wales squads if you say what's the long term solution at fullback is Rhys Samet the long term solution at fullback for Wales or do you find a uh, some someone else that you go right. I'm just going to put hang my hat on this person. Maybe that's the way to go. If you just no one likes hearing this, but maybe it's a case of writing off a competition in order to to build. Because Stuart's right. This is a fixture that no Welsh person is ever going to lack motivation for. Mm. But do you go with the, the young guys then and go? You get that. Plus, this is you're never going to get an experience like this anywhere else. Time to have it. Yeah, yeah. It's. <sighs> It's something actually that um, Steve Borthwick talked about after the game where he was basically saying the Italy result was the first step on a very long journey and was talking about Ireland and France and actually Scotland as well and saying that if you do things right, like they have done over the last sort of four or five years, you grow a team together and you build and build and build and they should be at the places they are now. Whereas he's saying about his England team that they're starting from scratch. And I guess it's the same thing for Wales too. But I wonder if there's some parallels, Stuart, with what Wales are trying to do and what England are trying to do with perhaps the France blueprint from four years before where I think it was that game where they came to Twickenham and got beaten 44-8. And I think it might have been the week after that that Dupont and Untermatt started together for the first time. They then came in with a plan to get Galtier in for the 2019 World Cup and sort of, they didn't necessarily write off that tournament, but they said, right, 23 is our thing and let's just grow this young team from there. I don't know whether there's any sort of parallels that we could draw with that between what England and Wales are going to try and do now? Well, it's worked so far for France. and It's brought them a, a grand slam. It's brought them some outstanding rugby. They're a little bit like the England 2003 team. It took them a while to work out how to win when the heat was on. They did that last year. I didn't expect them to win in Dublin because Ireland are an exceptional team, but they're going to be contenders in the World Cup. I'm afraid from the issue here is the fact that Ireland and France have done that job. When Ireland were losing games and journalists in Ireland were, were pulling their hair out about Farrell and Cat, I thought Ireland were playing some nice rugby uh, and you could see development. It's a great uh, parallel, that actually, Stuart, I think. Mm. You you could see development. Now, with Wales and England, uh, you know, and obviously uh, this side, um, east, of the, east of the bridge, we think about England a lot. That development hasn't been coming. And, and I don't care what Eddie Jones and his acolytes say. The World Cup was an excuse uh, to meander through the wastelands of, of mediocrity. Uh, and England 
reaping what they sowed. Steve Borthwick went as near as he could to saying Eddie got this horrendously wrong. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, right. Well, let's let's move on to Scotland because it was a hell of a game from Scotland. I mean, putting 35 points on Wales, extraordinary. Finn Russell, you called him a matador, didn't you, in your copy last week, Barnsley? He was pretty much the same there, again, with the three tri assists. And there was a good stat from Opta where since the beginning of 2022... He's given the most try assists of anyone in the world now. Ten, ten try assists in nine games. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, I know there was this chat from Dan Berger before the game, Al, about sort of, oh, we might as well not have bothered to come on the flight and the Scots are all getting excited. It's funny, isn't it? Because we know that that was doing that for his own team and his own motivation. But yeah. Scots never get excited about anything, do they? Especially when it comes yeah. to the sport. It's, <laughs> it was funny seeing uh, my compatriots bite hard on that one as well. Cause it's like... You've, Never met a more maudlin nation. Yeah. You know, the World Cup song in 98 was Don't Come Home Too Soon by Delamitri. <laughs> like, the most pessimistic nation in the world. But it's funny seeing people handle how it is now because... Unprecedented. You're just but, sitting there going, oh my God, maybe, maybe. You know, it's outscoring teams five tries to one. Mm. A team that has been your bogey team. You know, I was, I was chatting with some Welsh people the other day and I was saying, it's like, most kids check under their bed for the bogeyman. Scottish kids look under the bed for Shane Williams because there's just been so many heartbreaking moments through the years. 2010 that, was that. And I'll tell you what, yeah. that thought did go through my head after 46 minutes mm. when it was still 13-7 and Scotland were spurning chances close to the line. And they were, but the thing is, is that they were probably, they were, they were trying things, they were prodding. And that's, I don't think, Finn Russell was particularly good the week before against England, actually. I think he pulled it on when he needed it with two sensational passes at the end of the game for a try, but it wasn't him at his very best. But against Wales, perfect game for him. It was almost like, and I don't know if he thinks like this at all, but it was almost like a personal response to what Dan Bigger had Mm. said. And, you know, there were opportunities being created there. I mean, if Kyle Steyn was Duan van der Merwe, there was an early, there was a try earlier in the game, but he got bundled into touch, and it was great cover actually from Rio Dyer and and um, and Josh Adams. But there, there was product, and then when the dam burst, that was it. And it's you're right, unprecedented times. I don't know what to make of it. It makes me very nervous, Will. But I suppose uh, in the current issue of Rugby World magazine, actually, uh, Stuart Barnes has written a, a guide to uh, how to how to win the Six Nations, and in it, Stuart said that there's. A clear separation. Someone on our Facebook page at Rugby World actually said that the other games looked like the the Ireland France game in slow motion because it mm-hmm. just seemed a, a cut above. But Scotland fans will take it right now. Yeah, they're so clinical though, aren't they, Barnsley? I mean, in years gone by, Scotland couldn't score tries for love nor money for decades, could they really? But now in the last two weeks, they've got four points per entry, which by anyone's measure is remarkable, isn't it? If you think back to the game against the All Blacks in November, Scotland were the better team for 70 minutes. They lost the game because they spent aeons of time in the All Black 22 and didn't come away with the points. They've learned their lesson. I'm looking at, at, at Scotland now and I'm seeing strength and depth in the front row. The recall of Richie Gray has galvanised the second row. The back row's got strength in depth. White adds something. Russell... What he did against um, Wales is no more than what he did against Argentina. For a fly half in the same season, to be so mesmerically brilliant in international is quite something. He's got a brilliant combination of Tui Pilotu and, and Jones. Credit to Gregor Townsend because it was hard to drop Harris because of his defensive excellence. But my God, that 10-12-13 combination is everything England have been looking for for 10 years. 
Yeah, I suppose I'm, <laughs> there's the Scotsman in the corner. I'm going to have to make a, a, a typical plea for, uh, you know, it's just maybe a bit of calm. And I'm not saying people are getting carried away <laughs> too much here. But there's one thing that seems to, for as long as I've been alive, has been an Achilles heel for Scotland, and that is restarts. And France, oh. France <laughs> and Ireland will have seen Rio Dyer going up and taking nicking balls off Scotland at the restart watching balls sail over lifting pods that are miles too far forward and just going right well we'll have a bit of that you know on the other side of things actually and I think Scotland for all the the excellence in attack and for all the offloading and kick passing from Finn Russell and yeah the, the, the Duan van der Merwe basically brushing off tacklers for fun and Blair Cook, that's all fantastic but one thing that they do deserve credit for and it's uh, as a Scotsman I can say this is always giving with one hand and taking away with the other <laughs> so the restarts are still absolutely shocking but Scotland are actually the best so far in the Six Nations with defensive lineouts. they've nicked four balls and been what Oval Insights call a nuisance for, for one so that's basically a disrupting ball so it's not as clean as you want that's better than anyone else in the Six Nations so far Ireland have been two nuisance nuisance balls in a line and two steals France have had three steals and one nuisance so Scotland are just edging ahead and it's, I'm glad that um, Stuart made a point of uh, shouting about Richie Gray there because his renaissance recently has been fantastic he's kept himself in great neck he's, he's had a horrible run with injuries through his career but uh, you know, and as he's a much he's a couple of years younger than I am so I wish people would stop talking about him as being so old <laughs> but um he's he's been fantastic and I think he's absolutely thriving in that defensive lineup as well yeah now Ireland are no mugs in that department either and Peter O'Mahony's made that a real hmm. strength of his but it's yeah so I just thought I'd give them a shout out for that yeah absolutely well why don't we keep the Scotland ball rolling fair enough to them for having won so well um, and next on the ruck we're going to talk to a man who was part of that 1996 team Scott Hastings so next on the ruck let's hear from the legend that is Scott Hastings Well, fantastic to be joined next on the ruck by Scott Hastings, legendary Scottish player of years gone by. And Scott, we're partying like it's 1996 with Scotland, aren't we? First time <laughs> since your team to win the first two games of a championship. That's pretty cool, isn't it? It is, but it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it, that I was still <laughs> playing in a Scotland team that last won two games in a championship. In fact, well, we went on to win three in the trot, and dare I say, we were then beaten in a Grand Slam game against England that I have utterly no recollection of at all. <laughs> and yet, and yet, oddly enough, I remember all the three previous games. But, you know, full credit to this, uh, this current crop of players. I think everybody has seen the potential within Scotland over the last few seasons, and they haven't quite backed it up from a consistency point of view. But, yeah, two from two, especially the, the style of rugby, I think, that they're playing as well. I think that's being recognised by supporters and spectators alike, that it's the quality of the rugby on offer and on show that's really catching the eyeballs. Yeah. So the ones you do remember from that 1996 year then, um, beat Ireland in Dublin, beat France in Edinburgh, and then obviously, as you said, yeah, the third one was Wales in Cardiff. So what sticks out about those days? 
I think there was a bit of a transition in the team. There were some new caps came in. Rowan, Rowan Shepherd was one fullback and Michael Dodds. But also, rather interestingly, Gregor Townsend was part of that team as well. And I always remember the French game. And the reason I'm putting that into context is Scotland's next game up is against France. And I've always believed that France brings the best out of Scottish rugby. And if you can, can recall, way back in, uh, in, in that 1996 campaign, we came about with a game plan where we decided to attack um, France with width. So literally the first movement of the game, France kicked to Scotland. Gregor moved the ball, skipped past to me, and I moved the ball to Michael Dodds, and he heared off down the wing. And it got our campaign and our game off, playing fast electric rugby. And I don't think France were expecting that. And I think ultimately that is where in Gregor's DNA is his vision for the game. He wants to see players play to their optimum potential. And full credit to Gregor Townsend because he selected players and combinations that are informed. So it seems to be the jigsaws coming together, but again, we're not getting carried away. Two from two is good. Three from three would be better. Yeah, I was going to ask you, we were talking about this on the podcast before, that where are you on the sort of pessimism to optimism scale? Because it was funny before the Wales game, wasn't it, with Dan Bigger saying, that, oh, we might as well have not got the flight up here and Scotland think they're chocolate. And it's like, that's that's not the Scottish people we know. They're constantly pessimistic about their sport. So, so, so you're right. Uh, I'm the eternal optimist. And, yeah. and I've been in with the, uh, you know, the beauty. But I think... <laughs> This time round, they're just, you sensed it from the players that they were going to keep their feet well on the ground after the victory at Twickenham. They knew that they'd let themselves, their public, their supporters, their fans down by not backing it up. And they'd literally let games slip. And in some respects, they let games slip in the autumn series, especially, you know, in the match against Australia where Blair Kinghorn missed a late penalty for victory. And to be nine points up against New Zealand, you know, with what, uh, 12, 15 minutes to go and to, to let that uh, lead go, it was a missed opportunity. And I just feel that this Scotland team, they've learned from that. And consistency, as we all know in sport, is absolutely key. But also momentum is important. And with Scotland now going to uh, the Stade de France uh, to play a, you know, a French team that are undoubtedly number two in the world. They, were, they produced a brilliant performance against Ireland they'll want to have a bounce back themselves in front of their home fans. Rugby World Cup is a bit of a backdrop to that game as well, that they're building for that. But I don't think Scotland fear France. They know that physically up front, they're just going to have to be so much better than where they are in the first two games. Yeah, you you must be loving the, the midfield combination at the moment. It just seems so well put together, doesn't it? With Finn at 10... Um, Tui Pilotto at 12 who can run straight and pass and then you've got Hugh Jones who plays outside and for club it, it just seems to be working so nicely that trio doesn't it? You're right and inside Ben White of course at Scrum Half who's been sort of lighting up the Gallagher Premiership with London Irish and it's just that there's a nice blend and this is what I was saying earlier on that Gregor's gone for form Tui Pilotto I had yet to be convinced, but I knew he was playing well from Glasgow. When you see the way that he attacks the ball, you know, both hands on the ball and 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 honeypots defensive players onto him, but his distribution is great. Now, if you had asked at the start of the championship who was going to be his foil on the outside berth, well, Chris Harris was an obvious um, you know partner there. However, 
Hugh Jones has turned things around. He's a he's a wonderful line, what I call a line runner. He he understands the, the support angles and runs, and his his combination, you know, with with Tupelotto is, is superb. But then when you got the the, the, the box of check tricks in terms of Finn Russell, um, you know, you've you've probably got a complete package, a midfield there that other teams will be wary of. And the one thing about Russell is that he has matured. It's taken him a few years. He fell out with his coach a couple of seasons ago. Up until then, he was making a bundle of mistakes. He wasn't commanding the ball. He would have moments of utter glory and moments of, of, of sheer and utter desperation where these 50-50 passes were picked off, interceptions, missed kicks, didn't find touch. So I think his game management has actually improved. And and for me, things are working accordingly. Yeah, so the, the big question is, and we've been here before, Scotland, haven't we? A couple of, of good wins. It's it's backing it up and backing it up and backing it up. Do you back them? And I know we've got some time now to, to get the job done in Paris because then it's then it's Ireland after that. I mean, then you get really excited <laughs> well, if you come out of that with four, three well, and three. Yeah, well, well, they don't come any bigger than the number two team world at number two team in the world was France and their pedigree, but also the fact that they host the Rugby World Cup. And then the number one team in the world, Ireland, who are absolutely playing magnificent rugby. Talk about synergy in terms of players understanding each other. Um, you know, Andy Farrell's got some team there and, and they're consistently delivering. But Ireland have been on that sort of trajectory for quite a long time now. They've got used to winning. They know each other inside out. There's a familiarity about them. There's a confidence. But it's the old adage, well, it is one at a time. And, you know, we know that the cauldron of Stade de France is an incredible arena, especially when the French, you know, get their attack game going. And, you know, we saw some wonderful tries from France. They've got some brilliant, ambitious players. And Scotland are going to have to match that intensity and that physicality and... Yes, it is one game at a time, but again, the confidence factor means they can go there. They've won in the Stade de France. This group of players, you know, won a few years ago, and you know they've they've got a real chance. Uh, and there'll be, you know, there'll be some, there'll be some brutal physical rugby in amongst the flair. But France equally have got the ability to crack open Scotland's defence from anywhere, um, and I can see it. We're talking about games of the championship. Well, game of the championship was Scotland-England on, on weekend one. Game two was uh, Ireland versus France. And I think the Scotland-France Scotland game is going to be an absolute belter. It's a pity it's not, uh, you know, this Saturday coming. We're going to have to, we've got a lull for a week. Uh, but that perhaps allows everybody just to draw breath because it is a really intense competition. Mm. Quick last one before we let you get back to your Monday. Lots of Scottish fans and listeners will love the team that you played for in the 90s and all the things that you guys achieved. Do you feel like this group has the potential or talent to to emulate some of that or even better at the stuff that you guys did in the 90s? I think God was better at You know, they played some fantastic rugby. I think some of the best rugby I remember Scotland playing was in the 89 Championship. Uh, and a lot of those players went on to tour with the British and Irish Lions in 89. And of course, everybody looks to Scotland uh, to 1990. And, and I was part of a winning Grand Slam team. The thing about that team was we didn't play the expansive rugby that we saw uh, or we, we're watching and witnessing right this moment. But one of my favourite tours was down to New Zealand in 1990 with uh, against New Zealand. We played some fabulous open attacking rugby down there. 
we were ahead in the test match uh, in Eden Park to square the series 18-12 and lost it 21-18. And that 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 one hurt because we, we opened up the, the All Blacks that day. And, and 1991 was, um, you know, Scotland got to the semi-final of Rugby World Cup to be undone by a certain English team mm-hmm. um, who, who then beat us at Murrayfield in the semi-final. So they were, they were brilliant seasons. But I never played in a team, uh, a Scotland team, that beat Australia. I never played in a Scotland team that beat New Zealand or beat South Africa. Some of these current crop of players have done Australia. They've done South Africa. They missed a chance against New Zealand. But in this Six Nations, they've put themselves in a hell of a long, a strong position because of the quality of their play. So this team, yeah, not only are emulating, um, they could surpass, but they're also, for me, Will, they're exciting the crowd at Murrayfield. And, and it's great that so many people are talking about Scottish rugby when you know we're dominated often by football, and certainly in Scotland. And uh, it's lovely to see rugby on the front pages, and and the fans supporting them. So yeah, let's let's enjoy and revel the Six Nations, and 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 as we say, one game at a time. But um, France are beatable in their own backyard. But again, Scotland have to be at their best. Yeah. Hey. Well, we're pausing for breath, as you said. But when we come back, it's going to be full blooded, isn't it? Really appreciate yeah. your time, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank Great you. to hear from you. And we'll hear you on the telly, I'm sure, for some of the others later in the championship, won't we? I'll be I'll be with ITV Scotland France uh, in two weeks' time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Perfect. Will. Thanks, Matt. Thanks so much for coming Thanks. on, Scott. Okay, let's get into Ireland-France. We talked about it at the top of the show. And the one thing I wanted to tee up to both of you lads to start with is, is it quite rare, I think it is, that a game has such big billing and actually not just lives up to it, but supersedes it? There was a lot of chat in the week that could this be one of the great Six Nations games, first time ever 1v2 in the world in the Six Nations. And it was actually even better than we thought it was going to be. I mean, that first half, Stuart, was just unbelievable, wasn't it? It's another level. Um, everyone was expecting an understandably so tension. And then you come through the tension and, and the good stuff breaks out. But Ireland starts superbly. I think this one, would they'll be disappointed because it took them about 90 seconds to find their stride as opposed to Wales when they started from the kickoff. They, they are so aware of what each other is doing. I called it a collective instinct. They're just that they're moving around like one body, not 15 players. They're a tremendous team. I, I think probably more than anything else, you could argue at the moment they look one of the best coach teams in the history of rugby. I, I, I do believe that. And we just talked about their line out earlier, uh, Paul O'Connell's uh, role there. My old mate Catty seems to have found a new lease of life. Uh, and Farrell isn't putting a foot wrong. You know, England talk about the data and the stats. And they help you. Farrell talks about the feel and that drives you and that gives you that inner understanding. And my God, they looked as if a team with no questions at all. And that meant that when Sexton went off before the 50th minute, uh, Ireland seamlessly continued their game. They slowed down a bit, but I like that because you can't go at the pace they play at for 80 minutes. And they were able to just take the heat out of the game. They started pushing a few more kicks into corners. They they changed the, the nature. It was very mature rugby. It was rugby of a, a team who I, I thought before it started would win a Grand Slam. I wasn't so certain about the World Cup. I think they're now extremely live contenders for that as well. Just on that just on that um, tempo thing, and actually after after the 
England-Italy game, Steve Borthwick made several mentions of ruck speed. And obviously, Ireland are masters of that. But actually, just in general, the ball was in play for 46 minutes at the weekend. Um, that's There are episodes of The Sopranos that are shorter than that. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I mean, both of those things lead to entertainment, don't they? <laughs> um, it was just phenomenal stuff. For all Stuart said there as well about the, and I agree, there's the, the feel side of things is quite noticeable. If you look through Info Photo Agency, for example, follow Ireland very closely, and if you look at training pictures, they just look like they're all on the same page on everything. Even to the even just watching wee Craig Casey come out holding hands with uh, David Kilcoyne <laughs> at training, and they just seem to be reveling in it. But it's also a marriage of the old and the new. Prime example of that was Hugo Keenan's try at the weekend. Mm. That is a play out of the Joe Schmidt playbook, twenty twelve. Twenty twelve, yeah. Where the ball's clicked over, you've got a massive run up. You give it to one of your back rowers. In this case, Keelan Doris, who is playing exceptional rugby right now. He doesn't just truck it up. He uses footwork. To, to shift the French defence onto the back foot and then we've seen it so many times before it's Conor Murray gives a pass to someone in this case Finlay Bealham Conor Murray runs your classic bad loop line and Bealham just passes it straight to a blind run from Hugo Keenan who has got an absolute boulevard of space <laughs> and just trucks it all the way to the try line and it's like are we in a time machine here? Yeah, so that try and some of the Irish journalists remembered where exactly it came from and it was Leinster against Claremont 2012 Heineken Cup semi-final and it was Rob Carney who went through and actually ended up making the final pass that Keenan didn't need to make yeah. to Keen Healy on the outside but on your ball in play time stat as well I asked Opter about that as well and it was the highest ball in play time of any test match for five years so the last one was 47 minutes 46 it's just seconds, which is 2018. To watch, let alone yeah, I know. And the thing, the also, the, like for my Monday Morph for Time subscribers, I've done a bit of a deep dive onto Doris's day. Very oh, clever, nice. that. Yeah, Very well clever. Done, well done. Um, Keelan Doris. And there's one bit where you'll both remember when Johnny Sexton breaks on the outside and he does his sort of hunchback, scuttly uh, run. He carried more than he's carried in yonks as well. Yeah, 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 he did. But Doris starts his support line from his own 22, almost by his own goal line, and ends it almost at the other 22. And he played a full 80 minutes in the highest ball of play time game for five years and carried for 88 metres, which in terms of Irish forwards is one of the best ever in the Six Nations. And it's for all forwards since 2018, Doris now has the top two carrying performances in that five-year period, beating Billy Vinopola from 2021. So... Where do we think Caelan Doris ranks, Barnsley? Well, Caelan Doris is right He's right up there now with Surveyor as the best number eight in the world on current form, and he's been there all season. His pass for Ringrose was astonishing. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I, I was saying about Ollie Lawrence, he beat the game line, he got over it, but apart from that one big charge, there wasn't much footwork. Doris could play at inside centre because his footwork's so good, he's going to get beyond you and he's going to get the offload away. His running lines, his vision, he's fantastic. As for the thing about he lasted the entire 80, this goes back slightly to the Brendan McCullen cricket thing. If everything is a dirge, if everything is a battle, if everything is an attritional scrap, God, your body aches and you just think, get me off here. But when you're playing with ambition and you're playing at pace, OK, your lungs burn a bit, but you don't want to go off. He's enjoying himself. When you're enjoying yourself, 
it changes how you feel about rugby. Can we can we just tackle two slightly controversial things from the game? Because oh, yeah, I know I was going to jump in on this because yeah. I know where this is going. It isn't. It was an amazing game, but there were two moments that in any other match you just go, "Oh blimey, they could have gone the other way." So Winnie Antonio, almost certain red card that doesn't get given. We'll get a thought on that from both of you. And then the other one was James Lowe's try, where his foot was definitely in touch and. I've talked to people who know about these things over the weekend, and apparently, who, who have you been speaking to that knows about these things? Because <laughs> well, no, the amount of remember when that ball went out was it um, in the football World Cup? Was it South Korea where it was like, okay. oh, was that in touch? Was yes. it not? Oh, well, actually, if you analyse the shape of the mm. ball, who are your experts well, that you've been speaking to? It was more that at half time they showed the one angle that proves that his foot was in touch, but they didn't at the time, and apparently the TMO did have access to all the angles, but just didn't look at that one. And so then didn't see that his foot was dangling in touch. So on those two thoughts, what do we think about, firstly, Lowe, secondly, Antonio? Al, you can go first. Yeah, Lowe, I think, phenomenal athleticism, but his foot was in touch. Yeah. Yeah. Antonio, red? If it was given, I I would not have complained at all. Seen him given, Clive. Well, quite, but also, I mean, for all this, it's like, oh, well, the mitigation, it's like, well, the mitigation here is that this is the biggest human being that's ever lived. And he never tries to bend his legs. That's the whole thing, isn't it? That isn't, Stuart, that's the sort of tackle that they're desperate to get rid of. Someone standing up, not making an effort to bend and hitting hard. Uh, People say, well, what's he meant to do? Because he's the biggest man that ever lived. How can he tackle? The, The answer is... If he can't get himself into more supple positions, then don't tackle. Um, and that is yeah. the whole point of I'd the agree game. With that. That, creates, that creates space for others. On the actual tackle itself, I have been watching it, rock and rolling it, as TV says, back and <laughs> forth this morning. And I can fully understand why Wayne Barnes took his time and went yellow. The arm was not wrapped around him. The left arm was, the right one was down, but the contact was, the target was the ball. The initial impact was ball and then uh, chest just below the shoulder. I thought you can never be certain, but Wayne Barnes looked at that over and over again. And I think he thinks that is such a tight call. Better to leave the people who are the citing commission to look at it in the next week. And, And I've long argued Borderline calls, don't go red, let the siding commission decide. As for the try, um, I've got to be honest, I thought I saw uh, a, a toe touch the boot, uh, initial, touch the ground initially, uh, but I didn't see that clear angle. Uh, the villain of the piece is not Wayne Barnes. The villain of the piece, I'm afraid, is my old industry broadcast for mm. not showing it. And there's also a question is why the hell was that shown on television five or ten minutes afterwards you know if i was a director of the tv company i would be slaying the man who didn't show that and then thought let's put it out and create all this controversy and i say this i you know i worked in that industry for a quarter of a century you can never get away from the fact that there can be bias it might not have been an irish person even doing it i'm not suggesting that but it is human frailty and we have to trust television and if we can't trust television, we've got to trust the referees with the best information they've got. And again, on that one, you know, you can say Wayne Barnes got two big calls wrong. You could say maybe he got them right. When it's that marginal, you know, I don't want to see a game turned inside out for technical reasons. So I'm sort of defending Wayne Barnes on this one. Yeah, fine. Right, well, why don't we, just before we, we round up and do God or Goddess of the Week, touch upon the England-Italy game. 
Um, so I was saying off air that it felt like every England-Italy game on repeat, the net sort of England going to the mall, fairly dominant, don't quite put them away, and it sort of ends up 30-ish teens. Yeah, Stuart and I were talking off air as well about um, the performance of Owen Farrell, and you know it's it's a game it's a game that you can get away with a lot of stuff. So he was trying his hand at some things that didn't come off. Um, but you know when you've got Ollie Lawrence running directly at Tommy Allen and leaving nothing but a pair of smoking boots, you you know you can cover up a multitude of sins. So uh, certainly, and Borthwick after the game was talking an awful lot about this being the first step mm. on a journey. He didn't use that terminology, but that's that's the vibe. That rebuild, that's through. his yeah, phrase, isn't it? He used yeah. the word rebuild roughly 10,000 times. <laughs> um, so certainly, I, th- I think a, a win's a win for all that, really, mm. is the is the case of right monkey off the back, first win under Steve Borthwick, and go on. But I'd be interested to get Stuart's thoughts on this, about the the, op- the, the option at fly half, because there was a lot of talk over Farrell over Smith um, and stop mucking about <laughs> with the centres, who you've got. Well, we saw Farrell run at 10... What did you make of it, Stuart? Finn Russell plays the game on the game line. There's a millisecond between the defenders knowing what he's going to do and what Russell does. Farrell, uh, with the line out and scrum that was extremely dominant, um, was far too deep. He, he can get flatter and he does that for Saracens. He's never really done it for England. And it was okay for Ollie Lawrence against Italy. But if Farrell is throwing passes with opposition five metres away from him, France and Ireland are just going to smash Ollie Lawrence backwards. And the narrative says, oh, Lawrence made the difference, but he's got to be used properly. And it worked against Italy. It will not work there. And I still think there's lots of questions to be answered. Owen Farrell has a wonderful variety of small kicks. Sometimes he overdoes them. Marcus Smith doesn't have that quality of kick but he does have a a variety of handling skills and tricks. Sometimes he overdoes them. Farrell was okay, didn't prove anything against Italy. I honestly believe the right thing for England to do would be to start Marcus Smith against Wales and have Farrell on the bench and only use him if England need to change the way they play. Uh, I was bitterly disappointed that in the 72nd minute, Slade went off, And Smith came on almost as if England couldn't get out of their muddled midfield thinking Mm. about what they're trying to do. So there was lots of clarity in terms of their set piece. Uh, Willis gave them a a bite at the breakdown that they simply didn't have against Scotland. But eight minutes from time, you still thought they don't know what they're doing in the midfield. And you contrast that with Gregor Townsend and Scotland, where you say they have a firm tiller on the hand and, and that is a worry just just my thought on the um the marcus smith own foul thing to me that looked like smith's not getting a look in now for a few weeks at least go to wales i wondered borthwick would have never admitted that after the game because he's such a this is the team for this week type guy but to me that looked like the team for two weeks time that he was blooding for an italy game that actually wanted so, so, to play so, wales. so why so why was marcus smith coming on and Farrell shift into centre when Ollie Lawrence has given England what they've been crying out for for so long, and then Smith ends up with an inside centre who has got no pace whatsoever. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Where is the logic? Where is the rugby intelligence in that decision? Yeah, and this is where he's hamstrung by making Owen Farrell the captain because then it always becomes a sort of double-barreled decision to take but, but off your turn not, and your it? captain, isn't it? Is it really, Will? Is it such a big thing taking your captain off? I, it's not. Mm. I mean, maybe well, for him it is. That's the that's the thing, isn't I, it? Ireland don't have a problem doing it. No, no, no. no. 
But there we go. So, right, England have won, and I think that's that's basically all they need at the moment is just keep winning because everyone complains when they don't win, and then when they do win against Italy and it's all sort of, well, it's not quite good enough. I think England are at the point where they're not good enough to complain about performances. They need to just get wins, and they did, so fair enough. Um, but that was England-Italy, and now the next round of the Six Nations... Poor old Italy. They're hosting Ireland, which could be that could be dangerous. That one for them. Wales, England, yet again another game where you just have no idea what's going to happen there. And then France, Scotland. Can France back it up and win in Paris? That would be extraordinary if they were to go three from three with Ireland after that, wouldn't it? Wow. But next up, why don't we round off this episode with our God or Goddess of the week? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, God or Goddess of the Week time. Alan Dimmock, Rugby World Editor. What are your thoughts? My God of the Week is Stephen Jones. No, he, <laughs> he, he put me up to that. Uh, Steve isn't here this week. Caelan uh, Doris. And I don't think I need to explain deeply why. Okay, perfect. He's come straight in like a Caelan Doris carry with Caelan Doris. Stuart, where are you going for? I'm fed up with people telling me rugby is a game about boring pros. I want the poets to shine. Finn Russell is doing it time and again. Finn Russell has to be my God of the Week. Yeah. Well, we're rattling through quickly. So for the Monday Mall, I I sometimes pick options and sometimes people can vote for them. And you've already picked two of the four. And actually, uh, so I'll have to go for one of the other ones. One of them's an honourable mention. He wasn't probably the God of the Week, but... Godly biceps of the week to Antoine Dupont for that ridiculous save on Matt Hansen. I mean, if you freeze frame that, it looks like the the tail end of every drunken attempt ever <laughs> to recreate the lift from Dirty Dancing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But what I'll do is, um, I, I, I can't, I'm doing can't my believe ho- we've only just mentioned that now. I know we that talked was, about that was a lot. Just ridiculous, wasn't it? But. Uh, I've done my whole Monday more basically on Caelan Doris, so I agree with that call. And uh, Finn Russell, obviously, yeah, the Matador himself was amazing. But I think I mentioned for Jack Willis, um, and actually, this this people who follow their stats know that sometimes they change overnight. Um, and we put out a stat that Opta gave us, and it was one that I sort of started to notice during the game that within 25 minutes he'd made 14 tackles, and by the time he went off, it was. Um, 20 tackles in 53 minutes, which then got upgraded to 21. So he made, (laughs) every two and a half minutes, he made a tackle, which is the fifth best of any test player since they started um, counting these things in 2010, which is remarkable. 
And the fact that it was the same opposition, the same location against Seb Negri to the, almost to the week where he did his knee two years ago, I think for him to come back, play really well, score a try in front of his family and his son and all that, fair play to Jack Willis because that was a, a hell of an effort. So he's my God of the Week. But there's five nominations there across it, aren't there? Right, so now we've got a bit of a break, haven't we? It's always funny with these Six Nations where you get all excited about it and then you can't have calmed down for a week. But we're going to still be rucking the week after this and the one after that and all the ones through the Six Nations. But for now, that has been the ruck from the Times and the Sunday Times. Thanks so much to Stuart. What's what's your plan for the week, Stuart? You're going to have some lazy days. You're going to be filing all sorts of columns. What's happening? God, it's a it's a Monday. It's a Monday, and I'm podding. I'm going to take Monday afternoon off, and then great idea. I don't know, is it is it Premiership or Premiership Cup this weekend? Premiership, yeah, back into the Prem. There's a full round I'll, of Premiership I'll be, fixtures. I'll, I'll be somewhere in England, but I'll probably be writing about the events to come a week later. There's a, a, oh. the one that might be interesting. George Ford probably playing for Sale against Northampton. I know he played in the Prem Cup the other day, but yeah, he's going to come into it. George is a brilliant player. Um, but there does seem uh, an undue rush uh, from some people to have him back in the England setup. I would have liked him then. I, I wrote this as, as a sort of a, a player coach. But, I, you know, George, has, he's been out a long time. He's got to be allowed to just get himself back into the situation. I mean, maybe England will do that as a way to freeze out Smith. Uh, hmm. yeah, the other thing which we, which we didn't talk about is the Leicester impact. I think there's it's pretty significant that Wigglesworth's come in. It's the whole Leicester management that drove them to the title. But if anyone thinks Leicester winning the title has any resemblance in the vaguest to becoming an international rugby team, then they are deluded. And I'm getting very worried that England are going to tighten up. Like Leicester won a league by playing tight rugby. But that is not going to be... They're not going to be Ireland, South Africa and New Zealand and the likes playing that rugby. And I am just starting to get a little bit concerned by the mindset, shall we say. And Al, you've got an addition out at the moment, but what's the rugby world plan over the next couple of weeks? Yeah, well, it's just, we're sort of in that weird middle ground where we've we've got an issue coming out. Um, we won't know which way the Six Nations is going when mm-hmm. we hit shelves, so it's just more about the characters in the game and we're previewing the Women's Six Nations, which is coming up. Yeah, well. perfect. Uh, on that last note, I was, I was chatting to someone on Friday from the Six Nations and we, as we know from years gone by, they have two trophies in case there's a split on the last day so they don't have to helicopter it around. But they were slightly worried that they might need three this year depending on the results. It's always funny seeing people transport those trophies because they always get a seat to themselves on the airplane. <laughs> and they'll wear gloves like a snooker referee. <laughs> right, so plenty more Six Nations stuff to come. Bit of Prem next weekend, but we'll be back on the ruck next week. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for subscribing. And we haven't done this for a couple of weeks, but thank you to Alfie, producer Alfie. We don't mention you enough. So well edited and well produced by Alfie Reynolds. Goodbye, everyone. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. 
Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.